This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning. This is the Master Gardener Hour. I'm Anita McKee, your host for the day, and I'm here with Cheryl Linker, my co-host. And today we're going to talk to Pat Mawinney with Prestige Shrub and Tree, and we are going to talk about debugging the winter landscape. Um, we asked Pat here today, who has been our speaker several times, because, A, he's the bomb. He knows anything about <laughs> fungus and bugs, and I am a... Uh, confirmed groupie. So what can I say? I I'm guess, confirmed groupie as well. Oh, too. you would think that we would. Um, I, I mean, I just I find it so interesting, and he, he everything he says, I just uh, I'm I just I just I just stare at him and go, and how can this man know this much information? I'm going to be starting a club and just uh, give you the address. I want to be, send money. Yes, yes send money. Send money. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but he is president um, of Prestige Shrub and Tree. He um, he has a, a BS in botany and a master's in plant pathology. They're both from Auburn University. He is a certified arborist. He is a lifetime uh, master gardener. He's a certified uh, plant professional. Uh, oh, my God. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Is that not true? Yeah, it is. It's it amazing. Is. He's um, past president and chairman of, oh, my gosh, the Georgia Green Industry Association. Um, I mean, it just got, I'm a groupie. What can I say? He did all that when he was young and had lots of energy. Exactly. Now, 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 now he's raised trees. Now he hardly now, move, and it takes me forever yeah. to get anywhere. That's right. But that's okay. That's okay. But we are happy to have you here with us again, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule because the bugs are ready to, to They are getting ready to, to pop out. They are yep. going to pop out. But, you know, I, um, I used to work in the yard with my um, stepfather who's passed away, but he always had the best azaleas of anybody in the neighborhood, in the county. But he was big on taking care of the bugs in the wintertime when right. everybody else was in the house. Um, he would be out there cleaning out all the crowns of all the leaves. He'd be clipping back a little bit. Right. And he'd be putting dormant oil on everything. Right. And he, he just had, I mean, <laughs> he never had bugs. Everything always looked great. So that's why, that's how I learned to take care of a landscape during the winter so you don't have as many bug issues in the spring. And I think that's it's right. just, you have to be proactive. Exactly. Is yeah. that not true? Preventative and proactive. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes. And it, um, I mean, it's cold. It's wintertime. There's not a lot going on. People are in the house. But there are things that you can do now to take care of the bug situation because just because it's wintertime, the bugs are still there. Exactly. They're under layers of leaves around the shrubs. They're hiding under the leaves. You never know if you're going to get a cold winter. You're going to have a warm winter. If it's warm, you can... You, it's going to be a disaster. Right. And thank goodness for us, which um, we've had a lot of snow and cold weather here in Atlanta. So hopefully. Is that going to help, Pat? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, aphids, for instance, they actually have the ability. They they're, um, they kind of have antifreeze in their, in their blood. And so that even when they're very cold, usually don't get a kill on aphids. And what we find is that a lot of times, now, at least in the Atlanta area, because we cycle between the extremely cold, but then it recovers to fairly warm, mm -hmm. the insects sometimes don't, the populations don't really drop. We've also find that on severely cold winters, sometimes because you do get some drop in population, when they when you come out in the spring and it warms up, 
the act the, the insects are more active. There's less competition, so actually you end up with more insects sometimes after a cold winter. Oh, really? Also, because the plants are damaged, so the tissue is ready to be chewed on, sucked on, uh, and attacked. So that because the tissue is already damaged, it allows those insects to come in there a lot faster. They're more effective at what they do, and they're making babies and having parties and and just the population spikes. So a lot of times we find actually after cold winters more insects, a little bit of an anomaly. Oh, boo-hoo. That's not yeah. good. That's not good news yes. not for Atlanta. So tell us some things that we can um, do to protect our, um, like, um, don't you have to keep your soil really hydrated? Right. Yeah, the hydration on the soil, uh, some folks will say, you know, you don't water it all in the wintertime, um, which to me, I, I don't know where that came from other than the fact that, of course, if it's, you know, 32 degrees or colder and you turn your irrigation on, you're going to ice everything over. Um, but it, leading up to cold weather, uh, if your soil begins to get dry, what happens is the dry soil will drop rapidly to air temperature. If it's moist, the moist soil holds energy, heat energy, much better. Therefore, when it starts to try to get colder and head toward the freezing temperatures, it takes much longer to do it. So normally, a lot of times, it doesn't even do it. Um, also, the uh, if you can think about it, is if your soil has moisture in it, if it goes to freezing, you get ice crystals forming, which is not bad, and it stays at basically around 32 because ice forms 32 degrees, and then it usually won't, unless this is a prolonged cold spell in a deep, what they call a deep freeze, where you're getting deep soil freezing, which in the south we usually don't have. Um, that moisture actually helps stabilize the soil, and you actually stabilize around 32, 33, 34 degrees, which mm-hmm. the plants handle pretty well. If it's dry, and you have, you know, 5 degrees outside or 25 degrees outside, within a day or two, even overnight, that soil temperature will drop down to that air temperature. That's when you start getting the root desiccation and the damage. So, yes, hydration, especially before uh, a winter uh, event, is good. You can turn the irrigation on. Again, if you're in the south, uh, I never Are you talking about turf and and trees and trees and shrubs? Exactly. Okay. Yes. So is the turf as, as important as the trees and shrubs? Yes, because okay. if it's very dry, wow. same thing applies. If it's extremely dry, you'll get um, freezing temperature, below freezing temperatures in the turf, and then you get turf die off. Uh, if you, and the turf show is a different show, but if, you know, if you're keeping your turf very long and the root system is very deep, it can handle a little bit of that. But if you're doing real mowing and high-maintenance turf uh, activities, that, that root system is very shallow, and if it goes to air temperature and one or two inches deep, you'll get all these winter kill patches. So, yes, so hydration across the board. Uh, ideally, you always want about an inch of water a week in your landscape. Wintertime, it ebbs and flows. Uh, this year in Atlanta, we've been actually doing pretty good with that. Um, the, uh, naturally. Naturally, yes. Uh, but, you know, if you're up in the 70 degree, you know, if, if it's going to be, 55 to, you know, 65, 70 all of a sudden, and your irrigation system's on, you can run your irrigation one uh, watering to get an inch of water, and you're good for that way. You can kind of rehydrate. So you kind of have to play it by ear. Uh, must, some folks fail because they turn the irrigation on automatic, and they forget it, and then they ice everything down the next time. So my irrigation system is kept on manual. When I want to water, I just turn it on, uh, and it's already set to get about an inch of water overall in my landscape, and that's a pretty long amount of watering. Um, but I never turn my irrigation 
off completely in the wintertime, unless we're going to get severely cold. And then I turn my water supply off, but I don't winterize. Oh, you don't. So you don't drain the pipes. No. Most systems self-drain. A lot of the systems self-drain. Some don't, but some self-drain. And uh, what you'll find is, unless it's extremely cold for a long period of time, you're not going to get any freezing. Uh, Winterization. Now, now I'm getting all the irrigation folks mad at me. Winterization costs a lot of money. If I were doing irrigation, I would sell winterizing. Um, What happens is you're going to spend a lot of money to winterize. They blow it all out, do all the stuff which is fine, especially up northern climes where you get get ground freezes. Uh, but the cost to come in and repair a head that happened to freeze is usually much lower than winterization. The other thing is if you're turned off completely, then you can't water effectively unless you, you go out there with to. your hose right. if you need to. And I like, you know, I water off and on during the winter if it's dry. Oh, gosh, we're going to see the picket signs. Oh, my gosh, yes, <laughs> I know. Studio today. Yep. You're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. So sorry. So what can you do to – all right, let's, let's talk about what you can do to protect your trees and your shrubs to some degree right. against the, the winter cold. Yeah, you know, if they're healthy going into winter – they're going to, excuse the pun, you know, weather the cold pretty well. I mean, they're going to get some burn. They can die back and stuff. But if the plant's healthy, root system's healthy, you've got the nutrition levels are correct, they're going to come out in the winter sometimes looking pretty rough, and they're just going to sprout new leaves right. and stuff. Um, one thing I was going to mention is everybody gets um, – um, everybody gets fired up about pruning way too early. Mm-hmm. Uh, most commercial companies do it extremely early. That's because it's a scheduling thing. They don't have time to do it when they start mowing the grass and everything else. Right. Right, so they want to get their pruning out of the way. I don't like to prune anything till late March. I don't like to prune anything till Easter. Really? Yes, because nothing that comes out. Now, your azaleas, you're not pruning anyways. They, you know, spring bloom right. azaleas. So you're going to let that go through anyways. Now, if it's got leggy. Um, you know, Cheryl, you mentioned if it's kind of leggy, you can tip it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the azaleas aren't going to be pruned anyways. Uh, crepe myrtles, the myth is that you have to prune them for, for them to bloom. Wrong. Crepe myrtles bloom on new growth. They always have new growth. Now, whether you prune or not, they have new growth. Therefore, you'll get a certain level of bloom. Now, if you don't prune at all, light which is really the way crepe myrtle is designed. It's not designed to pr- do these extremely heavy pr- uh, blooms. So if you don't prune it all, it gets bigger, one of the downsides, bigger, 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 big, bigger. But what's nice is if you wait until it's, you start seeing new growth coming out, you can prune it right then, and then you'll be able to tell what's really dead and not dead. Then when you do your prune, you'll still get a good flowering base. You're not going to cut flowers off because it's going to bloom on that new growth. So the reason I like to wait, uh, until at least late March, uh, is be- that way we're way past any possible freeze damage. If you get out there and you prune, for instance, this year with the polar vortex and all this stuff, if you prune the first of March, they're predicting polar vortex to last all the way into well into March, which is the same type of flip flop weather. Which means we could have a snow ice storm, extremely cold cold weather. And if you prune the first of March and we have a fifty, just, well, if we have a sixty-five seventy degree day tossed in there, those plants will all break out with new growth. Then you have a, you know, a 20-degree night, and all that new growth gets sat back. Most plants can handle it, but it kind of stunts them a little bit, and it has, they have to restart using a lot of energy up. So if you've got a sick plant, that's where it really has a problem. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, one thing I was going to mention that most You're people, talking about flowering plants, like roses, hydrangeas. No, I'm, no, I'm talking about everything. Correct. Even hollies. It, it, most folks go in there and try to do heavy pruning on hollies. Now, 
the caveat on hollies is if you're trying to do renovation pruning, if you prune them very heavily, what people like to do heavy pruning in February, February. Mm-hmm. to get it ready because it's cold stuff, it less shock on the plant. The problem is if you do the heavy pruning in February, it's going to initiate growth. It doesn't matter how, you know. But doesn't it usually take four to six weeks? Not always. Because of the hormone that's released in the plant? Not always. Temperature, oh, temperature too. Temperature too, okay. And, and again, we're talking Atlanta-ish, southeast yeah. a little more, but if we spike temperatures, it will kick that plant on. So you get all this new growth coming out of a heavily pruned plant that's not a happy plant. going to get zapped. could be zapped. So that's why I say just wait. There's no reason not to wait particularly. The key is also adequate watering. Here, I'll go back to watering all the time. Folks do heavy pruning, and then they water, and the plant dries up, and they, I don't understand why it's... Which it invites the bugs into the plant. The bugs, because the it's plant. declining, it's exactly. in distress. Exactly. So let me ask you this. So when we have these really cold, cold, this cold weather, when the warm weather, and it's that the bark is expanding and contracting, and it's back and forth and back and forth, that's when you see cracking in right. in a tree. Like I've got a, a red dragon jet maple that... Oh, what, five years ago when we had that really cold weather, and it's still it's still hanging in there, right. and I don't want to rip it out, but I can see the cracking and the peeling, and that's where, I guess, bugs and fungus get in, and they exactly. set up housekeeping. Exactly. So is there anything that you can do? You know, unfortunately not. Uh, you can go in there, and um, if, you, if it's a new crack and you see it, you can wrap it. Uh, the, with wrapping, though, you need to unwrap it every month. Make sure there's no insect disease that have got in there on that. Right. Um, if you're in an area with ambrosia beetle, you mm-hmm. need to pre-treat it with a synthetic pyrethroid to reduce the ambrosia beetle activity. And so, okay. so yeah, but normally if it's a severe crack, mm-hmm. if you let the tree do its thing. It'll it'll heal over. Heal okay. over or, or not. But, okay. yeah. Okay, we need to take a quick break, and we will be back with Pat Mawinney, and we're going to talk about debugging the landscape. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Have you heard of quantitative fluid analysis? Commonly called QFA, this test assesses your body at a cellular level and gives insight into your illness. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center offers the QFA, an FDA-approved test that can often provide early diagnosis of conditions before they can be detected with other tests. Dr. Elena George believes in an integrative approach to medicine. She believes in treating the problem and not the symptom. Following a review of your results, Dr. George will suggest treatment approaches such as nutritional counseling and or the use of pharmaceutical-grade enzymes and nutritional supplements. Surgery and prescription medication will be recommended only when necessary. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment and mention that you heard this ad on Radio Sandy Springs and get 10% off of QFA testing. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. I'm Anita McKee with here, here with Cheryl Linker, and we're talking with Pat Mawinney about debugging the winter landscape, things that you can do to cut down on, well, hopefully cut down on the pest infestations that we experience every spring. We, when, we, when we took a break, we were talking about um, the, 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 the hot and cold snaps and the bark cracking on trees and shrubs and what we can do, and you were saying that... Yeah, it's, if you've got a severe crack in a tree, um, then you can wrap it. Uh, the problem is with wrapping sometimes if the temperature goes up, then you get more insect disease activity. Right. Normally, it's better just to leave it alone. Let the tree try to seal up. The trees don't heal anything. Plants don't heal. They seal. So the tree, as soon as that cracks, it's done with that, and it starts sealing up the backside. If it's a deep crack in, all the way into the, uh, the core of the tree, mm-hmm. uh, then it may not come back. And also it depends on how big the tree is. Small trees with big cracks, it's not good. A bigger tree can handle a little better. Then you get into structural and all of other stuff. Okay. But, so it, it normally it's a lot of times with this is it's hands off. Again, I, I mentioned ambrosia beetle. If you've got an area that you have ambrosia beetle activity, the uh, Asian granulate ambrosia beetle, they like weak trees. They, they sense them. It's an, the tree puts off ethylene. That's how they come in. That's what draws it's them the in. the dinner bell. The dinner bell. Mm-hmm. They'll come in and they'll attack it, drill holes on the tree, leave the fungus, the whole process, and then that top of that tree is dead for sure. Um, so if you spray it with a synthetic perithroid and it, where the crack is, that that reduces the activity. It, 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 a little bit of a prevention to keep that beetle off of there. So, um, Okay. Uh, I was going to mention one thing you asked about what to get ready for winter for pruning. What most folks never do is they never check their tools. Uh, <laughs> so, you know what? Um, I did. Well, there you go. And I did not. See, there we go. 50-50 right there. Right. So, so what you want to do is you want to uh, take all your, your cutters out, your loppers, uh, your hand shears, uh, your saws. Uh, you want to clean them. Okay, make sure you clean them, inspect the blades. Uh, for for instance, saws, most of it, a lot of these saws, you can buy new blades, bite the bullet. If it's having trouble getting through, uh, you know, and tearing stuff up, put a new blade on it. Uh, your um, uh, hand pruners, uh, if you're uh, the cheaper hand pruners, uh, if it's rusty, nasty, old, throw them, away. throw them away, buy a new pair. If you've got a nice pair of, uh, of the uh, replaceable blade pruners, bite the bullet and buy a new blade. You want them super sharp. Um as far as uh, loppers, same thing. Loppers usually have to be sharpened. But make sure all that's clean, ready to go. Because when you're doing this pruning, if you've got dull equipment, this is like, you know, that you wouldn't want the doctor to go in and do the, do the surgery with, yeah, I think that scalpel's close enough. <laughs> this is what happens to the plant. The plants get torn up. Um, put your electric pruners away. Put, sell them on eBay. Do something. Quit using electric pruners. Yeah, I don't use them. You can hand shear. Everything takes a lot longer. Uh, gas pruners, same things, electric pruners. There are situations where they are needed, but mostly you want to stay away from them because they chew up the plants. So, again, the tools, make sure you spend the money for the tools. Uh, people really freak out when they see the price of some of these good tools. There's a reason for right. the price, you know. Do you do you use alcohol to clean the, the, the blades you know, or any? We used to. Okay. Uh, but uh, there was some new research that came out that uh, actually it's probably not really needed. You're not really going to spread that much. Now, I'm going to say this. If you've got a plant, I mean, this is common sense. If you've got a plant that apparently is diseased, it's got stem canker, or you've been told it's got stem canker, yeah, if you're going to prune it, yeah, alcohol okay. or Clorox, you know, alcohol, you know, plain old rubbing alcohol, uh, and just dip them in a cup each time you make a cut. Um, 
for shears, though, when you're doing shear pruning, that's real tedious because you're shear, 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 shear. Well, you've already moved past the, you know, cleansing. So, mm-hmm. but for hand pruners or saws, yeah, you know, you can go ahead. I think something we use at Smith Gilbert when we do our, you know, March hard pruning of the roses is we just take Clorox wipes and perfect. we yeah. don't do it from rows. We don't do it each cut, but we, from rows to rows, right. we'll, you know, clean our pruners and they're easy and then you just throw them in a bag and just That's a great idea they're yeah. they're easy and, and it's not yeah and, and it, some people say well, i don't know if you need to well it, it, it's not a big deal go ahead and do it because it's, it's another level of safety because we do have some diseases that move around like that yeah some stem diseases okay so. well let's talk about um uh, uh, knowing your soil because a happy plant can fight off the bugs more than a, right. a, pan, a plant. Yes, a plant that's um, struggling. So, take your soil sample, right. have it tested at your county extension service before before you fertilize, so you know exactly what to put on. Exactly. Okay. And I'm assuming you guys do a lot of testing in your business. Right. Yes. Yeah, we have. And what happens in a commercial business? Um, we have we because of the cost of the the, the sampling, uh, even in-house sampling is is fairly expensive. So we we end up doing. Um, what we call trending a little bit more. We, we we assume that we're correct, and then we start watching and see if we have a problem. Now, if we go into a property and we go, this property, this has got some issues, we'll sample it right off the bat. Right. Most people do not make use of those samples. They put the plant in and they throw stuff at it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if you just sample, it's going to tell you exactly what the plant needs. And then once you do that first sample and you put your plant, whether you've planted or you're just doing your fertilization, you want to sample again the following year before you just start throwing stuff out again because it changes your year. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, pH is the big, big factor. A lot of folks don't understand pH, but if your pH is wrong, then that plant is not going to function correctly. It will not be able to pick up nutrients correctly. And then on, on the high end and low end of pH scale, it can get toxicities. You can right. Get, uh, mineral toxicities and uh, elemental toxicities, which obviously are bad for the plant. Okay, now what about lime? You, a lot of people think, okay, lime you just put on your turf, but you put, you can put lime on your plants. So tell us about lime. Yep. Uh, you know, soil, soil. So that the soil around the shrub uh, and the tree and the soil around the, in the turf, it's the, the same soil basically. So uh, you want to check, uh, again, that pH is what's going to tell you about the lime. It's going to tell you how much lime you need. You may not need lime. Right. The assumption that everybody uses is, uh, you lime yep. every year. There used to be an old saying in the South that the South had um, uh, very acid soil. So you had to sweeten the soil with lime. That was an old lime company motto. What we find is, and in, in across the board in Atlanta, is that when we go to a new property, mainly because it's been limed forever, mm-hmm. the pH is way up. You know, and you don't, you may not even need to lime for quite a while. Clay soils pH stays up much longer. Sandy soils it drops faster. So once you get your pH into your Correct range, which is five five to six five on the pH scale. Five five to six five. That's kind of optimal for everything, um, give or take. But once you're in that five five to six five, then you don't have to do it every time you plant flowers. Now, if you're going to remove the soil every year, put new soil in, yeah, then you may need to lime every year. But that's where your soil sample comes from. Once you get your flower bed prepped, you send a sample in of that soil and tell them it's for a flower bed. Then it'll tell you exactly what you need to do the flower bud to make perfect flowers. Have either one of you guys ever used the new, the pH meters Mm-mm. that you can buy and no. just stick we in use, your own soil? Yeah, we use um, we use a fairly expensive one. It's called a Kelway. 
Um, and how much is fairly Kel- expensive? $100 a meter. Okay. Now, I will say this, though. If you go to, you know, came wherever, Walmart, the big box stores, you buy the little $10 pH meter, it gives you a pretty good idea. It's Oh, really? Yeah. They're, you know, the accuracy on these things, because there's so many factors, is it soil too wet, too dry? You know, so there's a lot of these other factors, but you get a – it's a relative range. What it's going to tell you is, is it even close to your range? And if it's way off – uh, then you can deal with then it. Then you deal with it. But that's what that pH meter is going to tell you. Uh, the soil sample is going to tell you what you really need. And soil samples, most extension services are 8 to $10, I think, for a sample. And the yeah. thing that they do that's so brilliant is they tell you, when you, they will tell you exactly what to add, how yeah, much right. to add, and so you get the detail. It's like if your pH was, you know, 5.2 and you want it in the 5.5 five to 6.5 range, how, you know, it's hard for people to figure out exactly oh, yeah. how much to add and what to do. They're also do. looking at the soil. They, they they check a thing called CEC, which is um never heard of the, that. The cationic exchange capacity of the soil. What okay. it means is how electronically electrically sticky the soil is. So clay soils are high CEC. They hold on to stuff. There. Mm-hmm. That's why once you get the pH there and phosphorus, for instance, is very electrically sticky. It stays there. Low CEC CEC soils like sand soils. They don't hold stuff. That's why they leach. That's why things leach out of sand and stay in clay. And <laughs> so the the extension service, they know they're looking at the CEC of the soil, so they know they know where it came from. That's why they want to know what county it came from and where it came from. They have soil maps. Every state has soil maps, so they know pretty much what they're dealing with. So yeah, the and pH uh, that scale is, is log logarithmic, right. which is most people can't wrap their head around logarithmic between five and six. These are this is factors of ten, so this is not just one. This is a factor of ten. It's a huge difference between five and six on a pH scale. Right. Uh, neutral seven. Everybody says, "Oh, my soil's neutral." No, neutral seven. You don't want neutral soil. You don't want a neutral pH soil. Five, five to six, five. Uh, and there's a lot of soil chemistry here. But point is, if you if like like Cheryl's saying, that pH sample tells you it's cookbook. It says do this. And if you do that, you're going to be pretty close to being right. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Okay, so we talked about lime. Oh, fertilizing your turf. Right, let me ask okay. one question about lime. A lot of people on their properties, I see really big containers. They have camellias in them. They have Japanese maples in them. They have boxwoods. Boxwoods. Right. And they stay there for a long time. And I'm talking about really expensive, big, nice. How how would you go about dealing with that? I guess, should you check the soil? And how can you add supplements, like if you needed lime added to that, to something in a container is that yeah, uh, yeah you you definitely want to check containers containers are problematic because um they're they're too hot too dry too cold too wet they're always something in a container usually the other problem is if the plant's growing well it's been fertilized uh after a while it will become root bound and people don't connect this but you know if it's growing roots well it the soil can't be in there if it's growing roots, there's more roots in the soil than when it started. Where'd the soil go? Well, it washes out of the pot. It just little by little gets pushed out of the pot. So eventually you have a pot that's solid roots. 
So you've got an underperforming plant because there's no soil anymore. Exactly. Therefore, then, then that's a different story. You pull it up, you plant it in the landscape, and you start that one over again. So old, old plants and containers sometimes are ex- in extremely poor health that you can't fix. Now, the way you check the soil is with a, a soil probe, but you can just somehow get down in there and take a sample out and check that, pull the soil sample, send an extension, see what it says. You're going to adjust how you treat that soil based on what they tell you. And I can go through all that. That's interesting. Yeah. So uh, it's, you know, the soil sample is going to come in and tell you that you need 50 pounds of lime, for instance, per 1,000 square feet. Well, you figure the square footage, the surface surface square footage, which is two. Well, you figure out how much lime you need, which may be a teaspoonful on that whole pot. And it's all arithmetic. You know, so. Cheryl, I'm thinking of your boxwoods at your front door. That's exactly what I'm thinking <laughs> of. That's what I'm I've got some it almost twenty, I, almost twenty year old boxwoods that I really think if they're not responding to anything, even fertilizing. Yeah, them, I think it, they it, need to go in the yard. Exactly, I, but they still kind of look. They still look good. They though. may stay there until May, but I think I got to get a plan B. But that's interesting. The ratios and the way to do that. And one other container question. If you didn't want this gorgeous plant that you're so used to that's to put it in your yard, could you take it out, trim back some of the roots, redo the soil with the proper soil, and put the same size back in there? We're going to answer that question in just a minute and take a quick break. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that sleep is an important weapon against infection? Sleep is important because it is restorative. During sleep, known as REM, the body recuperates and resets. For example, the immune system increases its activity and stress hormones drop. There is a correlation between sleep deprivation and frequent colds. The average adult should get 7 to 8 hours of uninterrupted sleep per night, and a child needs more since they are growing. Sleep hygiene is important to set a good foundation. Techniques to promote good quality restorative sleep include going to bed at the same time at night, avoiding alcohol or caffeine prior to bedtime, avoiding exercise in the evening, reading to a young child at bedtime, avoidance of drinking fluids late in the evening, and avoidance of taking decongestants at bedtime. If you are having problems sleeping more than once a week, you should see a doctor for further evaluation. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back.
Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. We were just discussing um, with Pat Mawinney, Cheryl's boxwoods that she's had in some pots for how long? 20 years. 20 years. And she's concerned. <laughs> she wants them to live. Probably about 10 years too long. And yeah. and Pat's going to tell her what she has to do <laughs> to get these boxwoods to live. A lot of folks... Um, Cheryl, you mentioned you were getting attached to it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's one of the problems. Is this is kind of like having a child, and it's been there, and you've been babysitting, it's been great, and then suddenly it just doesn't perform well anymore. And, it turns um, into a teenager, into, you're Yes, exactly. It turns into a teenager, and then, um, uh, you know, you sometimes you want to send them to jail, but you, you don't want to hang on and try it well. The problem with the plants is, if you think about it, if you pull it out of the pot, what you're going to find is not a lot of soil anymore, massive tangled roots, just root-bound. And if you prune those roots, it's a lot of damage. So it won't usually kill the plant, but if you think about it, if you would take that out and just plant it, you know, as they say, set it free in the yard, and it's going to grow with that big root system and be happy. If you prune the heck out of it and try to do a start over, especially with a boxwood, because they respond so slowly to any type of treatment, you may have five or ten years where it's going to sit trying to recover from root system damage. Got it. So it's better to move it out, start over. Okay. Move it out, start over. Uh, we have the question all the time, people wanting to dig a plant up, move it out of containers or small cubbyhole areas or uh, surface planters, this type of thing. Unfortunately, the time you spend the money, some people say money's not an object. Well, money down the drain is, is I mean, it's just it's money, down, money the drain. down the drain. Yeah, so it's better just to start over. Now you've got the next 20 years. Absolutely. Yeah, so. Okay, so what about the turf? What about fertilizing your turf? Yes, against, turf, yeah. yes. right now, which uh, you pretty much um, the only thing you're going to want to fertilize if you've got if you're in a fescue area, uh, well, uh, which we are, we're in a, what's called a transition zone where we have fescue, we have warm season turf, which is really problematic for um, for us down here. Uh, they're they're not completely different programs, but timing on fertilization uh, is different. For your fescue, now's the time that you want to do a nice slow release fertilizer. You want to put down about um, a pound and a half to two pounds of slow release, 100% slow release. Now, I'm giving you a secret here. It's what we do in the company. Some companies do it differently. Um, Most don't want to spend the money for that slow release. But if you do your slow release fertilizer now and don't feed until fall again, your fescue will stay green enough and it will grow correctly with that amount of fertilizer. You may want to boost it a little bit in you know um, March when I now when I say start up I'd really like you to do it January and up until now that's the first application uh, you may want to tweak it a little bit April but you don't want to put too much on it because for fescue you'll encourage disease if it's got too much nitrogen going into the summer you're going you're going to get disease anyways but you're going to get worse disease warm season turf Right now, if you want to do some phosphorus, potassium, doesn't ha- doesn't hurt at all. Sometimes it's hard to find those fertilizers. Those are going to be O fifteen fifteen type numbers. The nitrogen drops out. That's fine. You don't want to do nitrogen heavily. Nitrogen. Sometimes no. there's trace amounts. That's okay, but uh, you don't want to. F- it's really not going to force the turf. But the nitrogen is a waste of money time. Your fertilization on warm season turf for Bermudas is pretty much when you start to see that green up. So we're talking March, Aprilish when they green up has to do with day length, soil temperature, a lot of different factors, air temperature. When you, it starts to green up, there's your first fertilization. You're going to put about a pound of slow-release nitrogen down. We like slow-release nitrogens. Uh, 50% slow-release gives you a little longer feed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then as you move through, one of the best things to do is call extension for your turf in your area, and they'll ha- they have a chart of when and how to fertilize. 
Yes, and I've seen it. I've got one for mine. Yeah, that's the best way to do it because you can scratch your head. Don't listen to all the commercials. Uh, I heard a commercial the other day uh, that um, the best time to plant fescues now. Well, it's not, but if you're doing sod, that was actually what it was. It was a sod, fescue sod commercial. Now, if you're doing sod, yeah. Now's a great time. Now's a great time, but you still rather do it in the fall. Right. So that's a sales commercial. So fertilizer the same way. We hear constantly in the south, and I'm sure that the south, the north, hears the southern commercials. They just send these commercials out. It's the wrong commercial for the area. You know, so um, for Bermuda, that's your schedule. Zoysia, you want to wait, really, until it greens up, starts greening up in, like, May. You can wait zoysia very long. And zoysia needs less nitrogen. Uh, and then um, for centipede, uh, you have to follow the directions on the, on, from the extension. Centipede needs very little nitrogen per year. Uh, you definitely don't feed it until it starts to um, to green up. And uh, uh, your pre-emergence and everything else, that's the other thing for the weeds. Now's the time to get your pre-emergent out on your uh, warm season and cool season, the fescue turf and the warm season turf. Get it out now. Okay. Follow the directions. Okay. Uh, and because so there again, happy turf, less bugs, less bugs, less, less disease, stress, less stress. Yes, less everything. Yeah. There's no reason to do the mow down on. Uh, everybody likes to scalp. The commercial people scalp very early. Don't scalp. That's till March, end of March. Exactly. Let it. When you start time, uh, trying to see in that green up, yeah. I think you did it a little early last uh, year. No, we didn't. Did? No, no, okay. no, 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 no. Okay. We were good. No, it's no, no. Supposed to be, to it's supposed to be barely green, right? Yeah, just start to green up. You'll see the green. And that's okay. because, And then what you're going to do is you, that's when you do the scalp. No, Bur- Gary wanted to do that. <laughs> I know Gary's Guess who won that fight? <laughs> yes. Anita won that one. No, we did it on time. That's because Pat told Yes, right. <laughs> yes. I can imagine what Gary says. Yeah. Uh, the um, With Bermuda, you can scalp it pretty low. Zoysia, you don't do a heavy scalp. You just do a light mow down, take that top off, but you don't go very low, and especially you don't scuff the soil because it takes zoysia forever to recover from that. It does not yeah. like that. So uh, centipede, different ball game. It's You just get the centipede um, um, information from the extension and follow that thing. All that uh, St. Augustine, we don't deal with much here. Same deal. It's, it's got its own little regimen. Further up north, you get into the blue ga- bluegrasses. Uh, they're a little different up there, too. They transition the opposite way. They're transitional for the warm season turf where they can grow cool. You know, we're the opposite way here. Right. So. But, yeah, the turf, uh, and, again, watering, yeah, because if it's dry, like I said, going into the spring, it's not one to green up on time. So that's why most folks, we have customers that will not turn the irrigation on until April. People May. are funny about that, aren't they? They are. And so we like to see that irrigation. I just told a lady the other day. Yeah, I just told a lady the other day. I said, go ahead. No later than mid-March. Get it turned on so that when we get dry, you can water. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's on the manual. And I agree with Pat about right. the manual. Absolutely. I got a yeah. question. Just finishing this turf thing. You you scalp and then you aerate, correct? You know, it doesn't really matter. It, it really doesn't, doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. The only the only caveat there is with zoysias, they're so thick. And again, sometimes, uh, for instance, Anita, you have what we're pretty sure is empire. I have empire. Mm-hmm. And empire is a very rangy, open turf, so you can aerate it, aerate it, scalp. It doesn't matter. Now, if you got emerald. You're going to have to take some of that. It's so thick. Sometimes you don't even have to aerate emerald because it cushions itself. Uh, Emerald sometimes requires dethatching. Dethatching is usually not even required in the southeast because we're so warm, hot, all that thatch just disappears. So the timing is not critical that much. Uh, Freshly for Bermuda, you're still going to get an aeration core out. Now, what happens is if you aerate before you scalp, you have your aeration cores out there. So when the scalpers come out, they don't like it because they've got all those cores in the way, and they just it just 
dulls the blades and stuff. Kind of makes a mess. So okay, well, let me tell you my story about aeration. I am I am crazy, <laughs> a little off, but I have a lab who's kind of crazy, and after my yard is aerated. This dog goes around and picks up and, and picks the cores up, brings them in the house. They're everywhere. So I have to go out and take a high-pressure water hose and explode all the plugs right. in my backyard. And plus, I think it looks way better, and I don't like the way the plugs look, and I'm like, want it to look really good. So I go out there. And I hose down. First, I run my irrigation and get everything kind of wet. And then I go out there and I shoot and hose down all those cores and then get them all broken down. That's cool because, I mean, it's getting the nutrition back in there and it's doing that and my dog doesn't eat them. Exactly. And And this is why uh, folks that play golf, they – they see the aeration done, but they never see the cores. They can't. So the assumption is you should pick the cores up. The only reason you pick cores up is because on a golf green, you don't want cores on there. Because it's going to affect your roll. Exactly. So that when they do a core aeration, it, they pick it all up and they clean it all off. But in your yard, this is a natural form of top dressing. You you aerate it. You open the soil up. The soil's right on the top. That, that soil that was down underneath has been aerated. It's up mm-hmm. on the top, and it filters back. Yeah. So what you're doing is perfectly fine. Yeah, and uh, it works. It works really yeah, good. We don't like people. Some folks go out there and rake them all up. No, leave it where they are, and that's that's what the part of the aeration process. Yeah, is to leave those cores there. Yeah. Now, if you could train your dog. You know, to, to like break them up and then spit the spit dirt out. Exactly. That would be that really would be good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, impossible. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Uh, you want? Okay. Let's talk about shrubs. Yeah. Bugs okay. and what we can do to help okay. these shrubs um, just cut down on the, the 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 pest populations. Right. I mean, something that we could do on top of keeping our plants healthy, which is probably the first thing. Right. And the most important thing. Cheryl mentioned it the the debris and the and the um uh, the the crowns. crowns yes and she, you write on on the nose it used to be blowers we didn't have blowers so these all the leaves and the crowns just did not build up they weren't blown in there so that's one of the problems when you do have blowing going on they blow all the leaves in there and it builds up builds up builds up some shrubs boxwoods naturally slough internal leaves and they build up around the crown so boxwoods are a different story but that crown debris build up you get more insects insects mm-hmm. hide there uh you get more disease uh fungal disease there's bac- bacterial activity possibly there's, there's just the biosphere is really great for all the bugs all, right. all the fungi and the bugs also it just stays moist and wet so the bark of the of the plant starts to deteriorate it's staying wet too long uh once that deteriorates now you've got stem canker you've got normal um uh, deterioration of just rot in those stems. Therefore, the top of the plant starts to die back. Uh, we see this a lot. With boxwoods especially, if you allow that debris to stay in the crown, boxwoods have a bad habit of putting air roots out, and they put it out into that organic. That's pure organic. The, the leaves break down. Everybody says, oh, organic's good. Right. Too much of anything is not good. So that organic breakdown from those leaves in the boxwoods and the pine straw and the leaves they were blown in there, the roots, it initiates root growth into there, little air roots coming out of the sides of the base. I've seen of, that, yes. Well, the problem is when they grow in there, they can't pick up nutrients correctly because it's all organic. There's no soil there. So they're they're trying to pick nutrients up. They can't. The plant, because those roots are higher up, the top of the plant starts to turn colors, oranges, yellows, off-color. I've color. totally seen this. That is because... 
the plant is relying on those air routes, the air routes aren't working correctly, and then what happens is all of a sudden that mulch dries out. Now that air route superizes, turns woody, doesn't work anymore at all, but now this plant's got all these roots that instead of in the soil, they're actually sticking up in the air. Should, what, can you top dress that with good soil? You can sometimes, but normally the best thing to do is if you just go ahead and just make sure the crowns are clear, again, especially boxwoods, all plants, but especially boxwoods, if you just make sure the crowns are clear and then continue to fertilize correctly, the plant usually will outgrow the problem after a while. Uh, once the boxwood, though, goes into that what they call winter bronzing, Yes. Uh, it's an indicator. It's not just winter. It's an indicator. It's it's a winter color, but it's because the plant has ha- has some root system problems. Too wet, too dry, not always too a exposed. System. Too exposed. There's it's it's normally that versus just oh it just needs fertilizer. Or everybody looks at that and goes it needs iron. It needs this. I thought it was just a temperature thing. I mean, I The temperature sets it off because the plant, see, boxwoods are evergreen. And so um, with the evergreen, they should stay green all year long. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk more about this winter bronzing because, you know what, I have got some cryptomeria nana, globosa nanas in my front yard that are orange, but they get a lot of exposure. So we're going to talk about that as soon as we return. Come on. Follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow sniffles.com. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. I'm Anita McKee, and I'm here with Cheryl Linker. And our guest today is Pat Mawinney with Prestige Shrub and Tree. And we are talking about debugging the winter landscape, things that you can do now to make sure that you have a happy and healthy landscape. And we, when we the break, we were talking about winter bronzing, orange plants in the landscape right. after a nice hard winter. And it's not just temperatures. No, it's not just temperatures. Um, now, sometimes it is. For instance, you mentioned your cryptomeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cryptomerias are notorious for bronzing on super cold, windy yes. uh, times. Uh, in fact, if you look at where cryptomerias natively grow, a lot of those you'll see don't have any bottom branches. They only have branched the top. There, a lot of, in some areas are used for pulpwood. They grow. It's similar to our slash pines in, in their native areas. And here, if you have mm-hmm. severely cold winter, 
they and we're kind of waiting for this now. It, it got in Atlanta. We got about about five degrees this year. Mm-hmm. If you have sub-zero temperatures, you'll see the cryptomerias drop all their bottom branches, and they they're still perfectly fine. They have this real pretty little Christmas tree shape at the top, but there's no bottom branches on them. That's normal where they grow when they have these severely cold yeah. temperatures. So. The bronzing, the problem with bronzing is it's a, it's a winter effect on the cryptos, cryptum areas, and it lasts, though. That's the problem. And what we get a kick out of is we have customers that will call in June. What happened to these? They were perfectly fine a month ago. Well, they just didn't go out there a month ago because they've been bronzed all this time. The problem is they they will start doing new growth, but the new growth is on the tips. And so that plant is orange the entire year with some green on it. And it kind of gets progressively weirder looking. Perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with the plant, but that's what you have to deal with. Um, other than that, conifers are notorious for doing this across the board. Leylands tend not to, uh, but cryptomerias do. Um, some of the cypress, tiny cypress, some of the um, uh, junipers, upright junipers will bronze a little bit. Bronze shrub, though, let's talk about the boxwood again. That's an indicator because that shrub should be green year-round. When it's not, what's happening is when it gets cold, it's stressing the plant. The plant is not a happy, healthy plant. The root system's not working. The stems are not working. The plumbing's messed up. And so it's suddenly the chlorophyll starts to disappear out of the top of the plant. Okay. If the plant's healthy, chlorophyll stays in there, you stay green. That orange and yellowing, is, that color is actually there all the time. We can't see it because of the, the chlorophyll. Okay. This is why you fall coloring the trees. The trees always have oranges and yellows in them. But when the chlorophyll breaks down in the fall... Yes. You see the orange yellow. It, it, that's a mask. The chlorophyll is a mask over top of those colors. So when you see that in the boxwood, that's not what it's supposed to do. And it's a direct indicator that it's got a either root system, I call it plumbing, all the, the cami, the phloem, everything. Okay. Something's going wrong. Normally what we find is if you go out of that boxwood and you look at the base, almost always I can go to a property and they'll say, oh, it's bronzing. What can we do? I can open it up and show them six inches of debris, mm-hmm. air roots, so if you clean all up and get them back on proper maintenance, proper cultural care. And, you know, boxwoods used to come with gardeners. I mean, back, you know, in the, the, the 20s, you know, the 10, 10s, 20s, 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 30s, 40s, you had a boxwood garden in Atlanta, and you had a gardener. And because he, they're so expensive. Exactly. And this gardener putted around. And he talked to them every day, and he nipped them and cut them and babysat them, kept the crowns clean, which right. he probably didn't have to do anyways because he didn't have a blower. So all these old boxwoods, you say, oh, they look really good. Why are the new ones having a problem? Because we treat them wrong. And that's part of the problem. So um, so we get, so we need to keep the crowns of the plants free of debris. Free of debris. Because that's where all the old that's d- right. leaves are. They get clogged up. They're decomposing. They've got eggs on the um Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got, you've got insect eggs. You've got fungal spores. Now, yes. we're talking the crowns. You keep the crowns clear. Most but you of, also pull it back away from the plant, exactly. correct? You, you get you it out. You clean yes. out from around the exactly. plant. Yes. So if you're doing... Pine straw mulch, bark mulch, doesn't matter. Keep it away from the crown and pull it away from the crown to let right. the, that area breathe. Yes. Uh, the mulch. The actual soil. Soil. The right. top. How far back? You know, it's kind of or a like cross- a diameter. Yeah. You know, you're gonna. I'm gonna say if you did a um yeah. a one foot diameter, that's plenty on most stuff. And and the reason there now, if it's an upright tree form, if you have tree. You just keep the base of the yeah. trunk clear. If it's a shrub, you want to pull it out so there's no branches touching. The mulch is not up in the branches and that type of thing. And what that does is two things. One, it, 
it doesn't help stuff get caught in there because if you've got all the mulch in there, it catches leaves. If you keep it open, it's a lot easier to keep it clean. Maintenance is easier. Soil breeze what you need. It goes through a dry-out period and stays excessively wet, which is what you want. Mulch is intended to retain moisture in the soil, right? not in its layer. That's why bark sometimes stays way too wet, especially after it gets rotted. Too heavy. Old yeah. pine straw mulch, when it's rotted, we like to see that pine straw beds raked out completely every three, four years. Yeah, and re- yeah. start fresh. Okay. That's what you're after. What's your take on, to this? we're talking this area, um, you can have some shrubs, I can think, like a camellia, for example. If you have a branch that is on the ground, would you limb that up so that you've got your trunk of your camellia here with no branches actually touching the ground? No, as long as you've got a fresh mulch layer uh, that you're replenishing, you lift the branch up and you've got fresh mulch under there, so that the branch that's touching the mulch, there's mm-hmm. some airspace in there. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you, what most people do is that it droops down, the branches are laying there, and they put more mulch on top of that, and then more mulch on top of that. So then it roots, basically, a lot of times, you know, where that's touching the soil. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you got a choice there. You can snip it off and actually sometimes even grow a new plant off that. But, but yeah, as long as you keep those drooping branches and stuff on a fresh mulch layer, you're fine. Uh, if, they're, um, being, if they've grown that way and they're just on the soil, yeah, then you may want to do some selective pruning. And what about stuff. underplanting like a really large camellia? Because I've got this scenario that my camellias are underplanted with pachysandra. Right. So when the leaves drop on the camellia, they just kind of get mixed in with the pachysandra. You don't see them per se. Right. But I'm wondering if that could be an issue if I should... Well, wouldn't uh, camellias are bad about getting small scale? Yeah, right. these wouldn't are these have scale. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to figure out what you want to do. You, then you kick in hygiene, uh, a, a hygiene regimen. In other words, so when you're, which I just saw the other day, right, right. Cycles, they have they have more scale than leaf, just about. Yeah, uh, you want to clear all the mulch out below. Even the pack sanders there, it's fine, but clear all that mulch out, and then your blower comes in handy. Then I can blow those Keep leaves out. Keep blowing those leaves out. Keep it clean until you clear the scale infestation up. Okay, okay. That then really makes then you sense. go back with some fresh mulch and stuff okay. and do it that way. But, yeah, that's another – we tell folks, clear all your mulch, keep it bare ground, and they're like, oh, this is not right. Well – now we're into hygiene. Temporarily. Temporarily. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to keep it clean. That's where that blowers makes... are handy. You, can, If you use a blower to blow stuff out of the beds, then you're good. You're good. Perfect. Yeah. Well, let's talk about bugs for a second. Yeah. Like um, camellias are bad about getting small scale, sasanquas. Azaleas get everything. Right. Spider mites. You name it. They've got it. What oh, um, do At what temperature are eggs killed during the wintertime where – you know, is there? Yeah, you know, here's what happens. Um, are they even? Do they even eradicate the eggs? No, it usually doesn't. And the reason, reason being, is because there's usually moisture on the leaf. Right. So when the moisture freezes at 32, it insulates everything. Uh-huh. Uh, nurseries used to do an old technique where if you had a bad, bad freeze coming in, they would actually turn the irrigation on. They would ice all their plants yes. down. Yes, I've heard of that. The reason. Mm-hmm. For that is because it stops everything at 32. In case right. of 32, well, below the 32, where it's touching the leaf, you're actually probably 33, 34. Mm-hmm. you got sun coming through and it's magnified. It's actually a little 
kind of a greenhouse effect. Okay. So the problem with the eggs are even on an azalea, you've got leaves, the eggs on the back of an azalea leaf. Well, there's enough moisture on that surface that usually you get a little bit some ice formation protects the eggs. Okay. Uh, it's got if, if you're going out, the eggs. yeah. If you're if you end up if it's cold enough to kill the eggs, you don't have to worry about it because it's going to kill the plant. It's going to okay. It's All right. So forget that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, as far as just forget winter. Uh, reducing populations. It's just way too variable off and on stuff. Now, you mentioned something, too. You mentioned dormant oil. Okay. Oh, yeah. My stepfather used that all the old The old oil, dormant oil. Now, what we have now is called horticultural oil. Yes. It's very highly refined. You can still buy old Volk or dormant, but the, those that oil is extremely heavy. You've got to be really be careful. Well, that's what I thought. It would, it, doesn't, it, doesn't it clog the – I would think that it would clog the it pores actually, on the It actually the doesn't, but it's, okay, it doesn't, but it's real touchy about temperature. Okay, something. gotcha. And, um, so even winter temperatures, oil. you can't do it when it's too cold either. Um, so the horticultural oil is is what you want to be using. Uh, there's different names for it, but if you read it, it'll say horticultural oil. They're very highly refined. Very fine, they're called fine oils. Um, that helps. You have like you've got to get it on the target insect. Right. Uh, and we're talking insects here, not fungus or anything else. What about eggs? Eggs will Doesn't not it? die. Okay. Because they're the eggs protect the protective right. shell of the egg. Okay. That's what it's for. So as that oil goes away, and then eventually it'll hatch out and stuff. So you, usually you still. This is why if you just use dormant oil, excuse me, horticultural oil, mm-hmm. uh, you'll still get. You'll say, well, it didn't work. Well, it did. It killed what was there. That it, it, that it covered and suffocated, but all the eggs and stuff hatch out later. So you have to just keep it on. So your it actually program. just kills the bug. It suffocates the bug, That's not right. the egg. With scale, this is why uh, you've tried horticultural oil on that uh, Sasanqua. Uh, the other thing is scales put out a waxy coverage. That's yes. their protection. Whether it's hard scale or soft scale. Soft scales are about as hard to kill as a, as a, a hard scale because the um, of the covering, the waxy covering, is waterproof. It's oil-proof, okay? Oh, so, heck. So when you're spraying it, not to mention trying to get under a, you know, your Sasanquas are, what, five, six feet tall, a lot of leaves. You're trying to get up under and hit all those. You, next you know, impossible. Next impossible. So uh, this is Systemic? where the systemics come in. Yes, we so, love those. And we're, we were talked about when I was at Cheryl's, we talked about the, um, she was using um, Merit. Mm-hmm. We'll, call, we'll say Merit. Merit is now off patent. Merit is a Bayer product. We'll plug Bayer there. They came up with Merit. Bayer has lots of cool chemistries that they uh, are using. Um, Merit is uh, imidacloprid is what the name of the chemical is. It's a neonicotinamide insecticide. Uh, it has... Um, it, there, there are some issues with the, what, we, what we call neonics. Uh, there's a lot of them out. There's safari. There's um, imidacloprid. There, there's a lot of different stuff. Um, the problem with the neonics is there's some non-target effects uh, if they're used incorrectly. I, I think it's being overblown. They're banned in Europe now uh, because of the, they, they're convinced it had to do with the bee population. Um, the picket's are already starting outside of the, the, the door. Um <laughs> It was the way it was used. There's, a, there's, it's really, com- it's always complicated. Is the answers. Point is though, if you use it correctly, uh, do a basal drench with this stuff, follow the directions, you can clean up a lot of these insects. Lace bug on azalea is one of our big problems. Yeah, clean it up. It'll clean it up. Um, uh, aphids. Anything that's going to suck on that plant, it's going to control that, and clean it up. Because once that bug starts to suck on it, the, the chemicals in there. Right. Negative pain response. They're, they're done. Mm-hmm. So if you keep it on that program, the other thing, too, is if you go ahead and keep it on a program, you don't have to spray, 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 spray. Once you get it cleaned up, you can back off and do preventative levels. Then you're using much less targeted insecticides. 
Okay. Well, we could go on, what, two more hours about bugs, right? Exactly. Well, thank thank you so much for coming in today. We really appreciate it. I learned, again, I learned a lot, and I'm... Still a groupie. Sorry, it's just always going <laughs> like to said, I'll, I'll give you the address. We'll just okay, start yeah. spending that money. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but thanks for joining us, and um, um, I guess uh, hopefully warm weather is around the corner, and we can all get out there and start. We didn't, even, we didn't even touch on any of that. Oh, I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, thanks again for listening to the Master Gardener Hour. Have a great week and happy digging. This is America's Webradio.com. The best in chat radio designed just for you.